Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bundjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Hi, and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by gorgeous Kate DeRouge, winner of Australian Idol in 2005 co-host or host of the awesome podcast, Why Do I Feel This Way? Kate, thank you so much for coming on. How are you today? Good, Danny. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to have you on. I have been gripped, absolutely gripped by your podcast. One of my friends, I think, told me about it. They said, you've got to listen to this podcast. And I, I, just, I was like, oh, yeah, and of course I knew you from Idol. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll go have a listen to that for sure. I actually had no idea about any of it, so it was all new okay. to me the whole journey through Idol and eating disorder and alcohol and the meth addiction, rehab and wow. And I also love how it's broken down into 
sort of segments, which uh, it's yeah. just fascinating stuff. So what got you doing it? Like what made you decide to share your intimate details so publicly? There were lots of reasons in the end. I knew that I had a story that I wanted to share or and then lots of people who told me that it was a story that people needed to hear. There's just so many layers to it. My addiction was certainly not a private affair. It was in, in the media and in the public eye and my my decline, yeah, it was very public. And I guess I just wanted to share my version of events, really. But also, I think, you know, in a way, I had a, I was in a unique position where I had a platform that people were prepared to listen and interested in my story because I came from, you know, um, Idol and, and that Young Divas and I guess the famous place, I guess, if you want to use that word. But yeah, and I just, I just the podcast, when someone suggested it to me, it just felt right. So away we went. Oh, it's just so awesome. It's really, really fascinating stuff. I love it. I hope you write a book because it's so oh, fantastic. My memories aren't good enough to write a book. Yeah. Hey, Idol might be getting a bit of a bad rap. We had uh, Robbie Mills on the podcast recently. Yeah. He was gorgeous. He was so beautiful. We're just talking about his struggles also with just the whole anxiety of the whole thing and just this dropping into fame so suddenly. Yeah, it's confronting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess. And also, yeah, if you're not prepared for it and you don't know what to expect, it's it's a lot. Yeah. I've got another good friend who's a, a musician, a really well-known country musician, and she said that her trauma in life really didn't start until she got famous, that yeah. all the childhood stuff was all beautiful, all happy. It wasn't until she was so kind of well-known that all the, the inner critic stuff started to show up. And yeah. You got to be thick-skinned to hang out in that area. Absolutely. Even like looking at Lewis Capaldi and I like what he's going through. It's really sad, isn't it? And you think probably not too dissimilar really. In, I mean, different in that how it's manifested for him, but that kind of drop into mega fame. And I think I look at it like that. I think we all have an inner critic and we all have voices that that tell us things that aren't true. But I guess when you're on a, and like Lewis Capaldi is a whole other world to where, where I am, but still, I think when you're, especially when you're creative, when you hand your soul over like that and, and and it's like somebody coming up to you and and yelling an opinion or telling you what they think of you and you not being having the ability to talk back and that's the bit I found really difficult was like I had all these people with opinions of me and and ideas of who I was and why I did the way I did things but I was a mute and I had no had no say in what they thought and I found that really difficult to to navigate it's really awful. Like, it's really awful. People can be so, so cruel with their comments. And I just think sometimes I read these things that people post and I just think, wow, why don't they know that there's a person, a human being with a heart and feelings that's going to actually read these things? It's pretty awful. Yeah, yeah really I always just try and remember the people like that generally, I feel, are coming from a place of hurt themselves and they just don't know how to manage it or how to channel it or what's going on for them. So they lash out at others. Well, people aren't assholes for no reason, usually. There's... Generally not. No. <laughs> That's usually always the reason. Yeah. So we come from the same wood, Kate. I'm from Castlemaine and you're from Bendigo. I am not just 30 minutes up the road. I know, amazing. And you were saying before when your ice addiction was really ramping up, you'd go down to Castlemaine to I school. did. I actually got banned from Castlemaine. I'm not very proud of that, but I was told by the police not to come back. They arrested. I got arrested in Castlemaine. So, yeah, I did a lot of my last couple of years of really that dark, really running around using sort of in that in that central Victoria area and Castlemaine was certainly one of my hangouts. Wowzers. Geez, I could, yeah, I could really go on about that, but I yeah. shan't. <laughs> yep, I won't even leave that alone. Castlemaine's a lovely place. It's gorgeous. Very trendy. Yeah. 
really yeah. trendy now. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so the first time I got pissed was on the Oval in Castlemaine on a bottle of, fuck, I can't remember what it was down, Masala. I think I got fingered by some guy called Robert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that dissimilar, my story, but I was at a party in, I think I would have been year 10 or 11. Well, my parents were pretty strict, so I didn't go to many parties and get drunk. Like they were pretty protective of me in that space. But the first party I was ever allowed to go to, I got absolutely shit-faced on a bottle of 1.25-litre bottle of Coke and, and Jim Beam, and I sculled the whole thing, cheated on my boyfriend and spewed off my best friend's car, and that was my first drinking experience. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> and yet we go back for more. Every time. Yeah. Buckwits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that just made me think, yes, we really are. But for me, like, it was a bit different. Like, I, alcohol didn't really get a handle. I mean, I didn't drink again for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wasn't, it, well, I, for me, alcohol wasn't one of those things that hit me. And that was my solution and off I was off and running. Um, and I, look, I definitely had my alcoholic drinking experience, but it was much further down in my story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you first drank, what did the alcohol do for you? If you can remember that first night, obviously you went at it pretty hard. Well, it, it did It did the same thing that all mind and, and mood altering substances do for me. They, they remove my inhibitions instantly, you know what I mean? And I'm very insecure. I was insecure from a really young age. I didn't have confidence. I, I didn't think I was funny. I didn't think I was, I certainly knew I wasn't cool. And I just remember, you know, that night I drank and I, and it, all of those insecurities and inhibitions evaporated. And all of a sudden I was making out with this cool guy from the year above me on the lawn. And, and I like, there's no way I would have been able to do that sober. It certainly had that effect. Yeah, hundred percent. Where do you think the inhibitions came from? Because it seems like from listening to your story, you know, you had a pretty great upbringing. I did wonder, like, with the eating disorder, and I'm thinking, okay, something's. What was it? Like, where do you think it stemmed from? You don't know. I don't know. And I and I talk about this in my own podcast. Like, I, I just remember, or I can't remember a time as a kid. And there's nothing like in my story. I had a little bit of trauma growing up with a cousin and and some stuff, but it like it was nothing outrageous but there was nothing in my immediate surroundings that made me feel unsafe but I just always remember feeling uncomfortable about who I was and 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 not feeling right in my own skin and I guess that brings me back to that thing of like I after obviously I didn't understand that at the time but since you know I've done a bit of work and I've been around for a minute like that really confirms to me that disease model of of addiction and alcoholism like I believe that that way of thinking was with me way before I even knew what a drink or a drug was. So even I'm sure you've done lots of work on yourself when you've kind of looked within and and gone there with probably therapists and things like that. That feeling of not being safe and comfortable in your own skin, you still, though you did mention something happened with your cousin. I won't out her too much because she had her own issues. She was just her own trouble. She had an alcoholic mother and she was troubled herself and she just... She didn't help me feel safe. She just would tell me things as a, as a four-year-old that were traumatic. Let's say that. You know what I mean? Like right. to an adult, it's all fine. But as a four-year-old, there were quite traumatic pieces of information that really made me feel scared and, and lots of other things. Well, that makes sense then. Yeah. You know what I mean? It wasn't as horrific as, but but you, as we all know from doing work, like trauma to a four-year-old can be, can be something that to an adult might seem irrelevant or insignificant, but can really affect a, a small child. So I had my own set of traumas through that. But I, um, like, I was terrified of the dark till I was 16. Yeah, so, but I just, you know, my my first 
addiction was food and I showed signs of that from when I was, you know, a five-year-old. I would hide food. I would lie about food. I would eat in a secretive and shameful way and show all the behaviours that I did as a, as a drug user all those years later. The behaviour was the same. It just looked a little bit different. Yeah, wow, amazing. What was the, with the eating disorder, what was that doing for you? Well, I guess it helped me. Like I don't, you know, obviously as a five-year-old I'd have no idea and I can't, mm. but, I, but looking back now I think it, it helped me, it gave me comfort, you know what I mean? It was mm. comfort and it helped me regulate how I felt. All addiction is an attempt to soothe something or to, to yeah. make us feel more comfortable. And, yeah, so it makes sense too when there's no other tools available that we just go for something, yes, that feels good. I'm going to use that. Yeah, and I'll do it again again because that's what gives me some relief. Yeah, and look, and time and time again on this podcast, always, you know, when we talk about someone's first drink, most people say, oh, I was a really shy fucking, like I was a really shy kid and it just took away my inhibitions or suddenly I felt like I fitted in finally or I didn't have to think about the inner critic anymore, it just disappeared yeah. Kind of different yeah. versions of the same thing. And um, it is. definitely the case for me. I know that for sure, 100% now in hindsight, looking back. So skipping forward, but when those inhibitions and insecurities show up, because I, I kind of believe they kind of hang around with us throughout our lives anyway, as kind of a little teacher or reminder, when they show up for you now, how are you soothing them? So I... um. You know, I mean, I'll be really fucking honest. Like, I still struggle, and I feel like since putting down drugs and alcohol, which obviously were the the addictions that were gonna that that had the most catastrophic fallout, I guess, and had the ability to kill me in in ways. Now, I feel like it's been a game of whack a mole. I feel like it's just been every time I put something down or I I stop doing something in an addictive way, like something else pops up pops up. And in the last six years, it's been relationships or sex or it's been shopping or spending or like I could get addicted to fucking air I reckon if it was if it would give me something and and a bit of space from myself it's been a real learning curve trying to find something that's not destructive to do that to to soothe and for me it's talking is is the biggest key for me like I I find if I'm not staying connected to people like-minded people and understand the way I work then I can get really messy and, and all those addictions can pop up and the first one to always pop up is food. Yeah, wow. Are you in some kind of 12-step program? Yeah, I mean, NA um, was a big part of what saved my life um, mm. as well as rehab therapy and, and a bunch of other things, but I'm a, yeah, I'd be buggered without NA. Yeah, I think that connection to community and like-minded people is what keeps us sane and it's just being around people that want to better themselves as well, that want to get better. Yeah, and it's, and, and it's, and it's not being about drugs quite quickly once there was a bit of space between that compulsion to use it did it became exactly that it became about being around other people that were curious about themselves and curious about why they behaved and why they thought the way they thought and just wanted to be the best versions of themselves and and that was really great for me yeah that's why it's just so essential to have some kind of community around especially if you've been at the kind of sticky end of things when it's got pretty out of control. I think we we just have to be around those people that get us. I've got full respect for the 12-step program because I know so so many people that have been on the podcast have used it as well. So yeah, I think it's great. It's beautiful. And I think Um, it's important for anybody to find their own version of that, as you said, like whatever your community or your people that are on the same path as you, like I feel like it's, it's so hard to do it on your own. Absolutely. I just feel too that for me, from my perspective, I just have to be around people that just want goodness, that just want good stuff. They don't want to sit around gossiping or talking about people or that kind of really, you know, idle bullshit that goes on. 
just not that it's always earnest and heavy and deep, but still playful, yeah. but just wanting, you know, wellness, I suppose. Yeah. So obviously you've had that time where you were teenage years and you spewed in your friend's car. Or you yeah, did all car. that. Done all yeah. that. Tell us about when it started to get a lot more intense, when the, the drinking started to really escalate for you. So the drinking really stepped up. And look, I'd, whenever I, like, to be honest, whenever I drank, I didn't do it. I know I was never that girl sitting on the beachfront having one cocktail in the sun being fabulous and going home and going to bed. Like that was, that's, drinking has never looked like that for me. You know, I'm, I'm trashed. I'm a mess. I've fallen over. Well, you know, it's, it's whatever. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I've never been a glamorous drinker. However, it wasn't my thing of choice. So it only really became a problem when I ended up back in my hometown, Bendigo, my parents had come and ripped me out of Sydney because I'd just burnt my whole life to the ground there and it was just time I wasn't safe where I was anymore. And I came back to Bendigo and I didn't, the things that I used to escape self weren't available to me anymore. I didn't know where they were. So I, I come from a really big drinking family and so I would just drink with them but every day and I would drink to pass out most nights. And then when I actually had a gastric sleeve, which was because I got very, very overweight once the drugs were put down and I and I put on about, I don't know, 40 kilos or something and I just couldn't get it off my own this time. So I did that and, yeah, suddenly I had nothing else to grab for but alcohol and it went from never having or appearing to have a problem with alcohol to being at Aldi at open time, buying $2 bottles of wine and drinking cheap vodka out of Gatorade bottles. So it, it happened overnight. And were mum and dad noticing the drinking? Look, they were, and I don't want to paint them in a bad light at all. They were, they're big drinkers and, and, you know, they're big wine drinkers. They drink at nighttime. They're business people. They would come home from work. They would drink wine or whatever. And I would get involved with that, but they didn't know about the bit where I would wake up in the morning and continue to drink. Wow. Considering your past, were you thinking, well, this isn't as bad as what I've been doing? I don't think I was thinking at all by that point. You know what I mean? I was just grabbing, like I was just reaching for whatever it was that was going to work in that time. And I just found like I choose like this sounds terrible, but I'd choose a come over a come down fucking any day over a hangover. Like I just hated hangovers. Not that I ever came down much either, I suppose. But yeah, it was it was just like anything else. As soon as I felt sober or as soon as I opened my eyes in the morning, that, that monster was at the end of my bed and I was I was off. Yeah. Wow, what were you trying to escape? Was it still the insecurities or what was going on for, for you then? I don't know. I get, as I said, like just for as long as I can remember, I've just never felt until recently, obviously, and I've done some work and I'm really happy to say that I've got freedom from that most of the time. But despite all the evidence in my life and despite all the success and all the people cheering for me along the way, like I just had never felt like I was enough or I stood up. Um, And I just lived in this fear of like one day everyone was going to work out that I you know, it was a mistake, especially once I won Idol, I really believed that just like I was just that imposter syndrome, like she's fucking not meant to be here. Like she's, and I was just, yeah, I just could never back myself. And I just hated myself like deeply, deeply. And then once I started using, once the fun bit wore off, which happened pretty quickly, like then I was just collecting a barrage of shit behavior and, and cheating on boyfriends and treating people badly and all the shame that's connected to that and stealing and lying and cheating and, and all of that stuff. So I just, yeah, just was just riddled with hate and guilt and shame and I just didn't know how else to manage it. Wow, it's so full on to imagine someone just to wake up and then go, I can't stand this demon that's standing at the end of my bed. I've got to get out of it. I've got to get it away from me. Drink yeah. it away. Drink it away, yep. Wow, so sad. How long did that go on for? Well, I want to say, and look, my brain cells are a little bit fried from all of the years, but I want to say the the 
just hardcore just drinking was about two years. Wow. That's a long time to be doing that level of drinking. Were you worried at all about yourself or was it just that there was so little self-love that you didn't care? Didn't care. I didn't have the ability to care, but I knew it was wrong and I knew it was a problem, but I didn't, I wasn't capable of even thinking about the possibility of not doing it. Well, when we do destructive things like that, when we just have so little care for ourselves, it's just so heartbreaking, isn't it? How do you feel when you look back at that version of yourself? Oh, look, it hurts. And, and, you know, I look back at that girl and I I just want to grab her. You know, I just want to grab her and hold her. And I was like, the pain, she was in so much pain. And I do look at her. I actually have a name for her. It's sort of like my alter ego. That's my addict and my my alcoholic. And her name's Bobby. And Bobby was fucked. And that helps me separate that behavior and the person that I am today. Like, it's it's not the Mm. same person. There's a part Mm. of me, I guess. But yeah, look, she she was just sad and, and in a lot of pain. Yeah, and oftentimes we don't realise when we're in it too that there's a fear driving us. There's so much fear. The fear controls my life and has done and I really relate to that thing of being just scared, scared to be with somebody, scared to be alone, scared to succeed, scared to fail, just scared to just do anything so I just stay in one place and do nothing. Well, and and really too, that, that fear stems back to even if you wanted to kind of deconstruct back to that little girl Yes, yeah. getting fed all these stories that are making her feel fearful and she didn't know what to do with that fear, most likely. Yeah. Wow, that's just, it's, it's so full on. So towards the end of it, were mum and dad, were family, friends, was anyone cottoning on that, okay? Oh, okay, God. Like, by the end of it, like everyone was very aware and I was, you know, and I'm really not proud of this and I talk about this on my podcast, I'm not proud and I'm not condoning or yeah, any of on any of the things I'm about to say and these behaviours, but this is my reality and I want to, I want to help take away some of that shame for people that might have done the same things. I was driving drunk. I was doing, I was just doing really dangerous and horrible behaviours. And so, yeah, of course, my family knew. Like I had, I took a job up in, um, on the Sunshine Coast, trying to, one of the many attempts I had at rallying to save my life and and this will be the, a geographical stop the drinking, you know, but everywhere I go, there I am. So I took this job on breakfast radio I would just drink. I would drink. I would finish at 11. I would go straight from work to the bottle shop and drink until I passed out. And then the alarm would go off at 3 a.m. in the morning. And I would, I fell over and cracked my nose. And just before I went up for the job, I broke my leg and all of these things. So everybody knew like my, I was just sloppy and I was messy. And yeah, my family, bless them. I I, I put them through so much. Yeah. Mm, That's the hard part, isn't it? Sometimes when you think about the impact it's had on other people, the episode I was listening to yesterday with your siblings about the impact it had on them, I was like, oh, and that was really brave of you to have them on to talk about that. That's huge. I was very brave of them too. But, yeah, I think yeah. But that's the important part, like everyone I think talks about the damage that an addict does to themselves, but family and the loved ones, as I say, is often the, the silent sufferers. And my sister said a really beautiful thing. Well, it wasn't beautiful. It was hard to hear, but it's really hard to be a casualty of somebody's story that you didn't have a choice in. So, yeah. Sorry, I get a bit I get a bit heavy sometimes. Sorry. I love it, mate. I'm all about the heavy. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. love a laugh, but I love the heavy. I yeah. love that what you said too, everywhere I go, there I am. There's so many people and I've also done this too, where you think, I'll just move. Yeah. If I move, that will fix everything. But we've got yeah. to change the belief about ourselves, don't we? We can't geography is not going to do anything. No, and I tried many, let me tell you. But yeah, I'd go and I'd set up in a new town and a new man and a new job and a new whatever. But I hadn't solved any of the issues and all the issues were just in the next town waiting for me. 
And then imposter syndrome, it's so huge too. Like, and there's that, yeah, that fear of being found out that they're going to see that I'm not good enough. Yeah. Why are we so yeah. scared of that? Why do we, we, like for people listening too, there'll be loads of people listening to this who will be thinking, yeah, that's me. That's me. I'm scared of being seen. I don't know. I like, I wish, I wish I had the answer and I still am on the hunt for it. I don't know why I wish. And I feel like if I knew I'd be either very wealthy or very happy, but I don't, I don't know what it was that created that belief. It's just something that had been with me forever. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really great book um, by Thich Nhat Tan. It's called Fear. And the whole book is just about our fears and it's a beautiful book, but he really just sort of helps us deconstruct the fears and how that most of our bad behavior is driven from fear. Yeah. And anytime we're doing something, we can ask that question. What's the fear here? What am I really, really afraid of? I've got a beautiful friend, one of my best friends. If something's bugging me, she'll always say to me, what's the fear, Danny? What are you yeah. afraid of? And it's so powerful. It is. And we like, we learn a lot about that in the 12 steps too. Like mm. what part of you is that affecting? Like why? And, and you're very right. Like most of my behavior is driven by fear, fear of not having enough, fear of not being enough. And that was one of the most confronting but freeing experiences of my whole journey was one of the parts of the steps is actually writing down all my defects of characters, like, but working out the fear that was attached to that defect and why that defect plays out in my life. And yeah, it was very, very powerful. It is bloody powerful. So the friend said, friend that I was saying that asked me that all the time, she's a 12-stepper. Her name's Linda. Oh, yes, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. been on this podcast a bunch. But uh, yeah, and it's great. And we often talk about that, that kind of looking at yourself and looking at your defects and it's, wow, it's powerful stuff. I think the whole AA program could just be a great spiritual practice. Oh, my God, I think they should teach in school. I think if people, if they taught that stuff in schools, people would just be better. You know what I mean? Just, it's just, for me, I just look at it and go, the 12 steps, the word God might scare people or whatever you want to say. But if you actually strip all those kind of words away, it's just a beautiful user's guide to who I am. It just explains to me why I am the way I am, why I think the way I am. and, And it just makes me be able to treat myself with kindness, really. Yeah, 100%. Because seeing the patterns and seeing them as they play out and understanding them, then we can kind of have, yeah, the compassion for ourselves. We're not self-flagellating and telling ourselves that we're dickheads for yeah. being a certain way. It's like, oh, there's that again. Right. Yeah. I'm behaving like that. Of course, this is coming up for me. Like, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's just so powerful. I don't know how, and, and Linda all said, friend, we often just talk about the recovery all the time like that's what we talk about spend hours on it just marveling at like wow we're so lucky that we get to do this work on ourselves like so many people don't and I think wow imagine going through a whole life and not taking inventory of yourself or not doing the work of some sort on yourself so in some ways we're the lucky ones yeah and I agree with that like I'll never say I'm grateful for being an alcoholic and an addict because I like I'm not and I wish there's parts of my brain that I wish that didn't work like that. However, I am that, as you said, I am grateful that I, my hand was forced to do the work on myself. Yeah, and, and a lot of people don't get it enough pain to know that there's a better version of themselves on offer. Absolutely. So obviously people want to hear your whole story. They'll go to your podcast. So I don't want to give too much away because it's so fascinating. It's so yeah. brilliant. So I know that you went into rehab essentially for the meth. It was alcohol very much obviously part of that as well. So it was just a full, like, we're not doing yeah. anything. So the day that I, so I, I view alcohol the same as I view all drugs. It's, it's no, I don't, it's not a separate thing for me. Anybody who's in recovery from drugs generally won't 
touch alcohol either because it all ends up in the same bin, I guess. So yeah, the day I put down all the drugs was the day I put down alcohol as well. So I haven't had a drink um, for nearly six years now. Wow, that's so amazing. Well done. Yep. Did you ever feel triggered when you got out to drink? Absolutely. I find that the most difficult one still now because drinking is such a normal part of life and so many people do it, especially in our culture in and out in this country. Like it's people don't ring up and say, hey, mate, let's catch up for a cup of tea. People say, we'll go to the pub and have a beer or let's go for a wine or whatever. It's just who we are. And especially like my family, as I said, are really big drinkers. My partner is a normie. He's, he can come home and have one beer and, and be done with it, which infuriates me. But yeah, so I do, I still like, that's something I have to remind myself of. And I have to remind myself that, and I still do sometimes go, oh, maybe I could just have one, like I could give it a go. But I have to mm-hmm. remind myself that drinking has never looked like that for never. It's never looked like that for me. So and it's just not worth losing everything that I've gained in the last six years to have one drink. That's so important. And for people listening, you know, I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time, Kate. Like people will message and say, I think I'm good now. I think I'm going to, I think I've got this. And I just think, oh, no, no, no. But don't. I've not known many people. I've known many people even to leave the program that I'm in and go out and just try drinking. And it never ends well. I feel, I do feel like once you cross the little, red line of drinking unmanageably, let's say, or using anything unmanageably, it's very hard, if not impossible, to ever do it manageably again. I 100% agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I know some people will probably get smashed after this and people going, yeah, fucking bullshit at any car. My auntie did it. (laughs) Yeah. Your auntie, she's a unicorn. (laughs) Good for her. Yeah. Good for Auntie Marge. But no, yeah, totally get it. And what would you say then? So what's one of the greatest tools when I call it the sneaky bitch, when the sneaky bitch shows up and says, let's just have one. Well, I generally tell her to fuck right off. Like that's, I have to, (laughs) she can fuck off because, but honesty is the key for me. Like I, the people around me know my situation and I have to be honest with myself. And if I get any inkling, or that little chatter turns up in my head, I'm out. Like, you know, I don't care where I am. I don't care if I'm at my best friend's wedding at my granddad's funeral. I don't care where the fuck I am. Like if if that comes up for me and it's triggering me, i got to get out of there. And that honesty with myself and the people around me, my safe people, is just, and communication is super important. Oh, honesty is everything. Honesty is everything. I'm not being honest, I'm in trouble. Yes, because you think about all the, look, even as a binge drinker, there was still dishonesty involved. It was like, trying to act sober when I'm on the phone to Ash and him doing the same or, you know, like sneaking extra drinks and pretending like there's dishonesty there. And I think that's what gets us in the shit really big time. Yeah. And and as soon as dishonesty comes up on the flip side, when you're trying to be sober, we're the best at lying to ourselves. So once that deceit comes to myself, then all bets are off and I could do anything. Oh, fuck. I've had a lady on this podcast ages ago uh, where she left her own dad's funeral because... She was done. The sneaky bitch was showing up at the yep. wake and she's like, I've got to go. She didn't even tell anyone out. Yep. Tell me, so let's say you're at your best friend's wedding. The sneaky bitch shows up. You're out the door. What next? What's happening for you? What might be going on in your body? What do you do for yourself to get over the, that next part? The next part is, again, like I, and touch wood, like I actually haven't had, and I'm super grateful for this, I actually haven't had any 
kind of actually there's been one but we'll go to that in a minute i um i haven't had any major in a, in a social setting where i've been triggered like that because i didn't allow myself to go into any social settings for a really long time that would be triggering until i knew i had a real good my feet really firmly planted in recovery and my and my head firmly planted in the idea that i cannot have even one i just didn't risk it i just didn't put myself there just was easier that way but i've got the people i've got my my core group of people that understand me they're not going to judge me if i call me and go fuck i nearly just ripped that champagne out of that lady's hand and drank it like what do i do um, mm. i make phone calls and then i up my recovery and i up my program that i don't have to run so tightly and so strictly now as i did in the beginning but if those thoughts come up like i go back to basics i go back to doing the stuff that i did in early recovery that's brilliant Yep. Yeah. Take it back to basics. Go back to the start, like treat it like I'm in triage, treat it like I'm in emergency and, and, and go back to what it was like at the very beginning. Yes, that's brilliant. How long was it for you? I know it's different for everybody, but how long did you not socialize for? So I socialized, um, I didn't love myself in a room, but I socialized with safe people. And I, uh, I reckon it was about 18 months to two years. And that might sound like horrific to some people. But it was a matter of life and death for me, so I wasn't willing to risk it. That was probably one of the things I think that saved my life in this recovery because I've tried recovery before, was I just didn't rush. Like there's plenty of fucking time to go back out and do all of those things that I thought were important. That that stuff will always be there, but I didn't know if I would have the strength to stop again. So I just I treated my recovery those early days like it was just the most precious thing. Yeah, well, unbelievable. Tell me about your safe people. So, and this is important as well, again, for people listening, it is so important to have your little core group of people that you feel super safe with. And what did that look like for you? So would you go out for dinner, say, or just hanging out at home with these people? How did that look? So like I've got my people in NA. Um, so I would quite often go to a meeting or call the people that are, you know, in the community from there and, and just talk it out on the phone. But my family are, and and it's a, it's a fine line too, because I don't like to put any responsibility of my recovery on my family. Like that's a hundred percent my responsibility. But like, if I call them and say, mm, I'm running rough, they'd drop everything and be at my house in 10 minutes. You know what I mean? They just, that's because they treasure it as much as I do. No. And look, I understand that not everybody has the family that I have and I, you know, I don't take that for granted, but whatever your version of family is, the people in your life that are, that are your family, just let them know and, and, and just be totally transparent with them. I feel all teary just what you said, that they treasure your recovery as much as you do. I think that's so beautiful. And I have people like my, my manager and there's just, there's a few people in my life that treat my recovery because they were there, you know, they saw it and they saw how fucked it got that they treat it with the same respect that I do. Yeah, it's so important. My real wish for people is even if you haven't got to rock bottom, but your sobriety is important to you. Like the, those people around you that really support you and love you and, and it is important for them too because it's important for you. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I love that whole concept and I think it's it's something to celebrate. So those people that are in your corner, gosh, just even letting them know how grateful you are for them, not telling you this, Kate's people yeah. listening, but yeah. I think it's so good to for the but people that have got your back. Yeah, and I also think like for the people that – they're, they've stopped drinking because it's as you said important to them like they might not that their life might not have been as catastrophic as mine was whatever but sometimes if you just let those people like tell those people how important recovery is to you and to and explain like what sobriety means to you because often people don't get it they go oh 
oh, you haven't had a drink for a month, you'll be right. Like, and it's not through lack of wanting to support you. A lot of the time it's just through lack of understanding. Oh, that's so important. Explaining to people why it's important. And I think, yeah, we've got to give people, I mean, they're not mind readers either. So it's, yeah, if we can just be really, and there's that honesty word again, just yeah. saying, being honest with people, yeah, it's because it doesn't make me feel good or because I don't like myself when I'm doing it. I'm not proud of the person I am when I drink and I need your support to help me be the person that I want to be. And if you said that to somebody that loves you, they'll go, fuck you, all right, no drinks for you. Yeah, that honesty. And then again, like if we're coming up against honesty and we're feeling a bit frightened of it too, then again, great chance to ask, okay, what's the fear? Yeah, what am I afraid of about not being honest? And normally for me, that's just people not loving me. Like if I tell the truth here, maybe... It's that abandonment stuff. Like we won't go deep into it, but it's that abandonment. Like if I tell, if I, show, if I show people who I really am, they might not love me. But you know what? The more I've showed people who I really am in recovery, generally they love me more. It's a tricky one. Absolutely. I think that's one of my greatest fears too. You know, I can feel it. I can feel myself tighten up. And even if it's just saying no to something or, you know, there's that fear of yeah. not being loved and it's, it's a, such a big one, isn't it? Yeah. So fear and honesty, I think these are these two beautiful kind of themes in this chat that we're having today too is, you know, looking at the fear and, and being fearlessly honest if we can and if we can't, what's the fear behind that? What are you afraid of? Um, and it normally just comes back to that same two things, fear of not having enough and fear of not being enough. When you're faced with something, if you're fearful of not being loved, what do you tell yourself then in that case? So, okay, if I said no to someone and I'm worried they're not going to love me anymore what's the next part for you what's the next part that you tell yourself so I generally and I've got a few people again like there's maybe two or three people that I have in my life that I have to fact check because I tell myself lies and shit all the time you know what I mean like I tell myself all kinds of crazy stuff like I still for example when people are angry and I've walked into a room and people are like you know in a mood or whatever I'll instantly think that they're mad at me. I'm like, fuck, these people are mad at me for no reason. Like I haven't even been there. So I know I will have to ring somebody and say, hey, my sister's a really good one for that. I'll say, hey, this is what I'm thinking and this is, and she'll go, well, let's just talk that, like, like, let's just actually look at the facts in that whole scenario. And I'll go, oh yeah, that's maybe. And you know, that's, that's self-obsessive really. Like who am I to think that everybody's thinking about me all the time? But so yeah, that's it's fact checking for me a lot of the time. It's going that if I let if I leave my own thought processes to play out on my own, quite often I'll tell myself lies and make up things that aren't true. So again, it comes down to being able to communicate with somebody and go, hey, this is what's going through my head. What are your thoughts? Mm, so powerful. Listen, I use Byron Katie's questions. I don't know. Have you ever tried those? No. Is oh you've got you're gonna love this. So it's like asking yourself, is it true? Like whatever the belief is, is it true? Do I, then the next question, because sometimes it's like, yeah, it's true. She hates me. She thinks I'm a bitch. Do I 100% know it's true? So we can't always 100% know it's true because we don't know the circumstances fully, usually ever. And then how do I behave when I believe the thought? So that's, I behave irrationally. And for me, all the things. So how does it feel in my body? What goes on in my mind? I usually get dysregulated and can't focus. Yes. Blah, 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 blah. Worst case scenario, I might want to drink or shove carbs down my face, you know, yeah. bowl of pasta. And then what am I without the thought? Oh, then, I like that. That's so good. I use it in my journaling all the time. I actually did it this morning. Someone pissed me off, friend. Am I without the thought? Yeah, what am I without the thought? And that's just free. Like you just feel free without the thought. And then you turn the thought around. So what's the opposite thought? 
beautiful. Byron Katie, for people listening, um, her book is called Loving What Is and it's an absolute cracker. Yeah, there's a great Oprah podcast as well. I'll chuck it in the show notes with her. She sounds like a bit of a whack job sometimes. But Oprah? Oh, my God. Not Oprah, and no, I love Oprah. Oh. Oprah loves us. Oh, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. We love Oprah. Uh, no, Byron Katie. So, yep. uh, yeah, it's absolutely it's amazing. It's such powerful work. So even if we don't have someone that we can call, like what you do, Kate, we can always, can I journal this or can I run through the questions in my mind? Boom, boom, boom. Yep. It's so helpful. Yeah. And the other thing that I do, and I've got better at doing, I couldn't do it early days when I started working, doing this work, is often just ask the question, have I done something to upset you? You know what I mean? And that's taken me, and, I've, and there's, I can't do that all the time, but I have been able to do, I'm not sure if I've got this wrong, but have I pissed you off or, yeah, that's Ooh. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And quite often people go, what? Um, oh, but even you saying that my bum's going tight a bit, because I'm yeah. like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, I, I want to ask the question sometimes, but I'm like, too, like, oh, no. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. Like, I'm not Speaking. perfect at that, but if you can get to that, just ask. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely love that. That's fantastic. Okay, so tell me about, you said that we'll come back to this major social event. So was there a big social event that you oh, had no, where you got no. It wasn't a social event. It was, um, and I don't talk about this in too much detail because I'm just not ready to yet, but my um, I lost my mum in a really sudden and tragic accident oh. last year and I was 13 weeks pregnant and my little sister was 31 weeks pregnant and um, we, yeah, it was the only time in my recovery where the feelings were sudden and instant and overwhelming that I wanted to escape and I only know one way to escape. And that's life. And the reason I share that is because life is life and it can be a real dick sometimes, life on life's terms. And I went into damage control. Obviously I had all those other things that I needed to take care of, like the part of losing my mum, but I also had to put and this sounds really terrible, but to protect myself, which at the end of the day, unless I'm protecting myself, then I'm no good to anybody else anyway. Um, I had to get really selfish and go into damage control and only think about me initially. And I had to put all of these things in place and I had to do all of the hard phone calls. And I had just like a checklist of things that I needed to do to go, wow, I don't actually know if I can control this one on my own. And so I need to do everything in my power to protect my sobriety in this moment. And again, that's an extreme, that's, I'm, I'm an extreme case, I guess, because of where my using and drinking took me, but just, I think always be prepared for that thing that you're not prepared for, if that makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about grief quite a bit on this podcast because it's one thing that can just send people back to where they started um, because yep. it's so big sometimes. And especially if it's a shock, well, even if it's not a shock, grief is so all-consuming. There's, no, there's no rules to grief either. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really sorry about your mum. Is it okay just to ask though how you did deal? So you've got yourself safety and your kind of boundaries, it sounds like, but when those big, big, big emotions would show up, how did you sit with them? How were you with them? It was hard. It was the hardest thing I've obviously had to sit through in recovery. And it wasn't pretty at times and I didn't do it right all the time and I wasn't a very nice person sometimes. And it was really, really difficult to watch other people manage grief in the way that I wanted to manage grief. Like it was really hard to watch other people use alcohol and other things to to soothe when I couldn't. Wow. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a challenging time. But again, like I really just urge, I guess it's like a fire plan, 
You know what I mean? Like if you have a fire, there's a there's a there's a plan. If there's a fire in the building and there's just a, a bunch of steps that you have to go through, and I that's how I looked at that for me. And I've still got I've always got that plan. The one at the bottom of the list is if I don't feel safe for me. And again, this is extreme. I go to rehab before I pick up. You know, that's where I put myself somewhere where I'm safe before I even have a chance. If I feel, if I feel that kind of unsafe, I just put myself somewhere where I'm totally off. My hands are off the wheel and I'm not in control. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, having a plan is so important and a fire plan, absolutely. If fire things plan. go to shit, yeah, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? Yeah. yeah. Do you think having the baby as well, being pregnant? Yeah, 100%. Helps? And I, I be- I'm a believer in the universe and I do believe sometimes things happen for a reason. And I think yeah. I had that little baby because, you know, I can't be 100% sure that if I didn't have him, I wouldn't be in a different position today. But he's also one now and I've still had to sit with grief and I'm still sober. So there's, you know, it can be done. Yeah. And that grief, it, it takes a long time to process, especially when it's someone you love so much that's a parent. It takes a long time and it's always showing up. Always. And look, I'll be really honest. Like I haven't done the grieving process properly yet. I part. And this, I feel like this is terrible in a way, but I, I've almost parked it. Um, and it's that old metaphor of, you know, shaking up a bottle of Coke and just opening the lid slowly and letting bits out slowly. And I only do what I can manage and then I put it away again. But it's, um, and that's okay too. You know what I mean? That's, it's, it's okay to do it and just be honest and go, I don't know how to, I don't know how to fully manage all of those feelings at this point and, and do it in your own time. Yeah, the thing I find about grief, and when you lose somebody really close to you, and it happens in every every situation, you know, there's there's a, there's lots of people around in the beginning, but after a week or two, everybody else's life goes back to the way that it was, but yours never does. It just, yeah, looks different. Yeah, grief's a tricky one. And it's very personal. It's very yeah. personalised. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well done. And well done for staying sober because I know, I know how big those feelings can get and the biggest craving I had was when um, probably a few months after dad had gone, I just had this overwhelming urge to go to the bottle shop. I was just sick of feeling it. What? You know, I was sick of it, but didn't, you know, I crawled, crawled into bed and just cried it out and yeah, was bad the next day. Could you imagine grieving, like going through what you're going through and then piling a hangover or coming down on top of that? It'd be horrific. Oh, no. And that I just would have added so much more shame and guilt and hatred towards myself if I'd have managed it that way. So yeah, it was hard, but I'm grateful obviously yeah. that I was the way it was. Yeah. Clean grieving, I think is the way, that's uh-huh. a good way of doing it. Oh, yeah. Okay, so um, <laughs> amazing. Do you feel like if you hadn't have done idol, you would have ended up where you were? Yeah. I get asked that question a lot. Um, oh, damn it. I thought I was. No, no, that. that's okay. It's, it's a really good one. Like at the end of the day, a lot of people go, ah, oh, if she didn't do idol, she probably wouldn't have gone there. Not true. I believe that my life would have ended up where it ended up regardless of idol or any other thing. Um, the only thing that I will say that I think the idol experience gave me was it just fast tracked my habit, I guess. And, and the quantity that I would drink, use whatever, because I could, I could sustain it and I could support it. As I've said before, like at the end of the day, when the money ran out and it did, it just left me with the dilemma of having to support a much bigger habit, which is a whole other story. But um, yeah, that's all. I think my life was on that path regardless. Yeah. Are you still performing? Yeah. Yep. So I had a couple of false starts. When I got clean, I thought I hated music and I never wanted to do it again. And it was the devil, which was just 
a lot of anger and resentment that I'd collected over the years towards it. And then when I started just doing a little bit just for myself and with no expectations attached or anything like that, just for the fun of it, I realized that I actually really fucking love it. And more importantly, and it's taken me a lot of years to say this, like I'm actually pretty good at it. So yeah, I've just been slowly doing it. And then I had a couple of false starts with COVID and then I got started and then I got pregnant um, and then I've had a little baby. So the last 12 months has been trying to work out how to be a mum, and yeah, so, but I've, I've been doing little gigs here and there. I've got some cool gigs at the end of this year uh, and some cool stuff coming up next year, but just easing my way back into it because at the end of the day, like a lot of my demons live there. You know what I mean? A lot of my stuff is wrapped up in the music industry. So I just have to approach with caution. Absolutely, 100%. And it's nice to just do some small little shows, little intimate things where you feel really in control. I had Dan Sultan on the podcast just recently and he was saying that he makes sure, you know, if he's playing somewhere, he's like, that's my venue for the night. I don't care what the punters are doing, but all my crew, you know, everyone, there's no alcohol backstage and it's just what he, and he's like, it's not that I'm being judgmental, it just helps him feel safe yep. and he, he feels in control then and everyone loves it that they're not getting hung over and they're getting to the next show not so tired and and all the rest of it and I know with my hubby Ash he just decided like he was straight into a festival with um Scotty like the day the first day we decided to go sober and it was huge and then two weeks after that with Jimmy Barnes this whole crew and everyone's drinking and yeah Jimmy wasn't but yeah it was just all around him and he's just like nah just decide nah it's just not an option and um He's been able to manage it. Yeah, just getting in there sometimes. But, yeah, keeping it manageable is is a really good idea. And I love the idea of just doing some small shows just to kind of put your feet in the water and get comfortable there again. Yeah, and in, and just like there's been a, the odd gig that I haven't taken because I don't – it is that. It's a big – like not these days, but back then I just knew that I – again, back to that honesty with self stuff, like I just knew that I wasn't ready and it wasn't yeah. worth it. It just wasn't worth any of it. So, yeah, and like I guess in those situations, again, like I've been backstage where everybody's being loud and drinking and looking like they're having a, a wonderful time and people offer me a drink and I don't, I'm not sheepish about it. I just say, no, nah, I'm in recovery. I don't drink. And it's just that honesty thing again. Yeah, it's awesome. And most people just, they understand, they get it. Well, they do and they go, and they actually, then they get curious. They go, oh, wow, fuck, well, tell me about that. Yeah, 100%. It's such a great opener too. And I think more and more it's like becoming more the norm now that no one drinks. Like, you know, Ash was just saying that most of his support acts now because they're way younger than him, they're having cups of tea. <laughs> like they're having cups, yeah, cups of tea in the band room. That was a show recently he did. There was a big writer and he offered it to the support acts. He's like, do you guys want this? Oh, I don't want it. And um, they're like, oh, no, we don't drink. It's like two bands. I know. It's fucking cool. Good for them. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really, really awesome. I love it. Absolutely love it. And, you know, more and more musicians just just doing the same. It's just beautiful. Yeah. yeah well, so well done. Well done to you. Okay. And tell me, like, the good stuff. I mean, obviously we have to feel the emotions. We have to go through all that. But tell us about the good oh. stuff. Yeah. So I guess, like, when I came into recovery initially, I thought life was going to be this giant rainbow of unicorns and lollipops and just thing was going to be fabulous all the time. But as I said, like life, life is life and life is hard sometimes, but it's hard for everyone turns out. And not everybody drinks themselves stupid and, and burns their life to the ground when they have a feeling. So a big part of what I love, like, yes, on the, on, on the external world, my life looks beautiful. I have 
all of the materialistic things that I lost in in my using and drinking. Like I have a, a, a you know I have a car and I have a house. I have a beautiful partner. I have a, a baby. I have money in the bank. I don't have to steal petrol anymore. Like I have all that stuff. I can afford food. All of that external stuff. But the part that I cherish is the internal stuff for me. I can get through life most of the time feeling pretty comfortable in my skin and feeling fairly peaceful and I don't wake up every morning lashing and whipping myself for who I am and and hating on myself all the time. And, yeah, for the most part, like this might sound boring, but I live a fairly simple and vanilla and peaceful life and that for me is what it's about. Yeah, there was nothing peaceful about my life before I put down all of those vices what went on up here on a day-to-day basis, you just I just couldn't even begin to explain to you, but I'm sure you understand. And I, I just don't have that anymore. That's what's priceless for me. Yeah, stepping away from that chaos and having that peace is so beautiful. Yeah. It's the best. If you could go back in time and speak to, to young Kate that was getting trashed and getting into it, what would you say to her? I'd say I'd tell her to stop, but she probably wouldn't have listened. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I you know I just I just told her and tell her that she was loved and it was going to be okay because I know back then that she like I I didn't think it was going to be okay and I certainly didn't feel loved or lovable and I just wish I could show her herself in six years time yeah yeah absolutely that's beautiful oh Kate DeRouge I absolutely love this chat thank you so much and again having me yeah, thank you. And uh, your podcast is just absolutely brilliant. How many episodes are you going to do? So we've done the six and the first six was just me getting real vulnerable and saying, hey, here it is for all that it was and all that it is. And, you know, then my family come in and, and finish it off. And then we decided I'm just going to take time, let that land, let that process. Mm-hmm. And then next year, I'm really excited. We're coming back. We've got a bunch of exciting guests some celebrities, doctors, just people with different types of addictions, different type of mental health, different types of recovery, um, and just anything that's a little bit tricky and uncomfortable to talk about. I just want it to be, you know, a safe space for people to come with their stuff and and talk because I think there's such power in in sharing your inner world with others, and I, th- I think that's one of the first steps to getting freedom. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely love it. Oh, Kate DeRouge, thank you so much. And again, your podcast is Why Do I Feel This Way? Really yeah. recommend everyone just tune in, have a listen. It's captivating yeah. stuff. You get all the the juicy, all the juicy details, but it's beautiful. It's actually, it's, I've listened to it and it's had me laughing sometimes and sometimes I've been crying listening as well. I'm just like, oh, heartbreaking. It's a beautiful, it's a journey. <laughs> it was, it was a journey um, and it certainly was a ride, but I'm I'm grateful to be off it. Yeah, congratulations on all that you're doing and all that you've achieved. And I've got to tell you this, you're fucking gorgeous. And for someone that's been through what you've been through and you just got your skin glows, your eye, you know, because I don't know if everyone's going to be able to see this, but your eyes, like just gorgeous. Isn't it amazing that we can come through what we've been through and kind of, it's like, I don't know, I don't know about you. I'm Well, see, I'm 46 and I just feel like I'm in the best shape emotionally, physically that I've been in ever, or maybe it's just being comfortable. I don't know, but yeah, it's good, isn't it? It's good, but yeah, it's it's amazing once all that stuff gets put down and you give yourself and your body a chance to recover, like things can turn around really, really quickly. Absolutely. Love it. Thank you so much. Jenny, thank you so much.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.